Welcome to Putting the Real in Real Estate, the podcast about all things real estate, all things local, and all things life, where we hope to inform, entertain, and inspire. Hello and welcome in everyone to episode 15 of Putting the Real in Real Estate. I'm your host as always, Glenn Hawkersmith. And it is really good to be back with you. We have taken quite a long hiatus from the show. I believe the last episode I recorded was in back in June. So, you know, the the housing market, the spring market was kind of delayed this year for obvious reasons with COVID and, and everything else going on. But, uh, man, once it picked up and, and started to take off, it, uh, it, it was in full swing and, and I just really had to devote all of my time and energy to actually selling some real estate and try to hit those goals that I set for myself this year, which, uh, it looks like, uh, looks like that's going to happen, which if you would have asked me that back in April, I would have told you you were crazy, but you know, this market is just humming along and, uh, I was going to, before we get to our guest today, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And uh, I've got an article here that Lawrence Yoon, the NAR chief economist, wrote in uh, last month's edition of Realtor Magazine. And it's entitled, Why Home Sales Are Humming. So he quotes in, in, in this article that home prices have mostly outpaced broader consumer price inflation over the past decade. So from mid-2010 to mid-2020, the median home price rose 61% to reach a national average of $295,300. Now that's significantly higher than our local market average home price, but uh, we are we are steadily catching up, I think, in that department. So, you know, the reason for this is steadily shrinking supply coupled with steadily rising demand. Um, During that that time from 2010 to 2020, we saw inflation of 18% and a wage hike of 30% over that same same 10-year period. But the percentage of income devoted to a mortgage principal and interest payment to buy a medium-priced home is essentially unchanged during that time. So that reflects the the awesome power of low mortgage rates, as as he states in this article, which we all know have hit an all-time low um, back in July, and and they may even fall further. I saw that just this morning. I saw an email that the Fed came out and said that they're pretty much committed to keeping the rates where they are through 2023, as long as nothing drastic changes in the economy, I guess, to help boost the economy. So I don't see these interest rates going anywhere. So hopefully that will will continue to help the overall economy. I know real estate has been one of the very, very few bright spots in the economy this year. So hopefully it will remain that way. So he goes on to, to say that, you know, after the initial shutdowns where where home sales kind of took a plunge, they took off again and they're poised to surpass 2019 levels here in the final months of the year. So 
And that, once again, is all due to the Federal Reserve keeping those interest rates low and the lack of inventory. And we're going to talk about that lack of inventory and how we may be able to combat that and all kinds of other things with today's guest, who is David Bauer. And we are going to get right to him here in just a second. All right, my guest today, David Bauer, has been involved in every facet of the real estate industry for over 30 years. He's experienced in residential building and appraisal, land acquisition and development, and property management. David's the leader of the David Bauer team, which has been in the top 1% in sales in Southern Indiana market for many years. He's the president of Discovery Builders and part owner of Schuler Bauer Real Estate Services, which just so happens to be the number one real estate company in Southern Indiana. He has received numerous awards for his achievements and service to the industry and is not only a member of the Southern Indiana Realtors Association Hall of Fame, but just recently was nominated as a candidate for Realtor of the Year in Indiana. David Bauer, congratulations on that and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Glenn. Glad to be here. So first of all, thanks for, for taking time to be with us today. I always tell people that you are the smartest person I know when it comes to anything real estate related. And uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to have you around as a resource and somewhat of a mentor. And I appreciate you taking time out of your day to be with us today. You're certainly welcome. You're certainly welcome. So as I stated in the intro, you've been in the business for over 30 years and correct me if I'm wrong there. Am I, am I shortchanging you at all? No, no, okay. 34. Gotcha. So your father, Buzz Bauer, he's somewhat of a, of a local legend in the business. And so can you just kind of start by telling us a bit about his story and how your family got, got started in the real estate industry? Sure, sure. So my father um, started in the real estate business in the 60s. He was originally an insurance agent. And I know you don't want to hear the gory details, but my dad uh, did a wonderful job and he was my number one mentor. And um, he started a company by the name of Buzz Bauer Realtors. And later uh, in his career, he became partners with uh, Janet Blake, Diane Berry, uh, and they became Bauer Blake Berry. They were a Better Homes and Gardens franchise. And um, so my dad taught me really what I, the roots of what I know about the industry today. He was a big believer in education. He always supported me. Uh, and sending me to classes and encouraging me to get more education. So whether it was the days and the times were very different, right? There wasn't the webinars and the podcast that we have today. So it was off the Indianapolis to take classes at Bloomington, or excuse me, at, at IAR or off to Indiana University to take classes uh, at Bloomington. And so he just encouraged me to do a lot of education and as far as his career, um, he was a market leader. He was an innovator back in his time. And um, in the year 2000, uh, when it was about time for him to step aside and, and, and think about retirement, uh, we, we did a partnership, um, a merger with the then Shula Realty and Bauer Blake Berry. And uh, at that time, his partners, Diane Berry, Janet Blake, and himself, uh, along with myself, they were all nearing retirement age. And so we did the merger uh, and I became the partners of Tony Schuler and at that time, DJ Hines and, and Barbara Pop. 
and Shula Bauer was formed as of January 1 of the year 2000. And um, they, the two companies were market leaders at that time. And since the inception of Schuler Bauer, pleased to say that Schuler Bauer has been really the market leader since its, its inception in January 1st of 2000, really in most every category. But that's a pretty amazing feat considering that's, you know, 20 plus years ago today. And the rest they say is history, right? And the rest they say is history. And, and one thing about my father, just to, you know, because I know you want your listeners to kind of understand the story, right? A little bit of a story about who Schuler Bauer is. Um, interesting things about my father besides doing a number of, of great things with his business he's the only two-time uh, cyber president back then they called him presidents i think today it's chairman of the board or chairperson and so he's the only two-time president he was also a state president uh, at indiana association of realtors and he was one of the initial founding members of what was once called the southern indiana board of realtors and uh, so my, my dad had a lot to do with the formation of the local association that is Southern Indiana Realtors Association today. And uh, he served that association for many, many years. And he served the state association and uh, received many accolades from both of those associations. So uh, getting back to that, speaking uh, mm -hmm. of your father and, and your journey into the business, when you were younger, did you, was it just a foregone conclusion that you were going to be in real estate or was that something that, you know, a lot of times kids don't want to do with their, what their yeah. father does and they kind of rebel or is that something that, that was just, you were born into it and, and that's where you no. knew you were going to no. be all along or what's the story there? No, no there's a, again, I, I don't know if you want to have a four hour podcast or a one hour <laughs> podcast, so we'll, we'll give you the light version, but um, I had zero interest in getting into real estate, none whatsoever. And um, I was young in life and, and young in marriage and, and with small children. And uh, the need arose, right, for me to have a job that, that paid the bills. And, um, and it just so happened I'd been laid off from a job. And it was a brother-in-law of mine at the time that said, hey, you should go into real estate. That's where the easy money is. And uh, <laughs> So I, I went and took the class and, and had zero interest in getting into the business, um, but I did. And, um, and it's been very, very good to me, very, very good to my family. And certainly it was the right move for me to make, but I had no initial interest in getting into the business. So did, did your father encourage or discourage that? And, and in turn, you, you have three daughters in the business now. <laughs> Did you encourage their participation in, in the in the industry or or discourage it or was it just, you know, hey, wh whatever comes, comes? You know, it, it's probably more the latter. Um, and, and my father accepted the fact that at the moment in time, uh, it was probably the right move for me to make. I mean, one of the things, speaking about my own career first, it, that was fortunate to me, I think, compared to how people today sometimes enter real estate, um, I entered real estate at the age of 19. You know, a lot of us like to joke and say, I've been in the business 34 years and I'm 39 years of age, but I really did get into it at the age of 19. And um, so at the age of 19, my alternate choice was to go take an hourly job that probably back in those days, you know, would have paid $6 an hour or something that would be nominal, you know, today, certainly. And so it allowed me to kind of get up and running. And one thing that you'll identify with is 
in real estate, it's hard to get through your first 12 or 18 months, really maybe even your first two years. It was no different when I began than it is today. And so the blessing for me was that my alternate choice was to go get paid minimum wage doing negligible things that would not have led me to where my career has led me to today. And that allowed me to kind of break through that 18 month window. Back to the question, my father always supported me in, in the sense that he encouraged me. He never supported me. And, and I'm kind of the same way with my kids. He never really gave me anything other than took me to lunch, uh, gave me advice, took me to lunch, um, supported me in education uh, and encouraged me to, to go to training classes and to work hard. And so to speak to my kids, um, I, I think real estate is great. Uh, it's a great opportunity. You can make a lot of different career paths in real estate. Real estate no two are exactly the same. And, uh, and, and I think that for my children, I think it's, it's worked out well for all three. They're approaching it differently. Um, they're getting different things out of the, the business and the industry. They're all three successful. Uh, but I'd say I approached it much like my dad did. I really didn't give them anything. I didn't give them a huge leg up. I didn't, you know, I didn't financially support them. I encouraged them. I uh, still today think that getting more education is the best path. Um, and then I probably uh, hold them to high expectations and, and to high standards which is kind of what my dad did with me too. He expected me to, to do better than the average agent or to work harder than the average agent or be smarter than the average agent. And so, uh, but he expected that of me and, and kind of um, more like determination and will as opposed to he certainly didn't do it for me and I certainly haven't done it for them. And I think that's the best thing you can do for your, for your children. Now on that topic, did you ever feel like you had to fight that that notion that people just assume that you were handed things because of your name. And I'm sure your daughters probably have to kind of fight that too. Did you ever feel like you had to work to kind of get out from under your, your dad's shadow? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I ever felt like I had to work to get out from underneath it, but absolutely people who really don't know you uh, might judge you initially, you know, based upon your last name and think it's easy for you or it's different for you. And, and there are some advantages, right? I mean, it's nice to have a name in the community that's synonymous with real estate. I mean, my children have the benefit of having my name and, and my father's name in the community for years and years. So that's a benefit to them. And, and then it's a detriment to them in, in the sense that people probably expect them to be the best or to know the most, uh, even, you know, in their first six months on the job. And, but I think they all three approach it in a similar fashion as I did. I think they probably rise to the challenge um, as opposed to um, shy away from the challenge. And so, yeah, I, I mean, there's some people, but I, I don't think it takes long for people to really understand who works hard in this business, who's smart in this business. And, and it's a great asset to have had a father before me. I've got a fly in the room. <laughs> Um, it, it was a great asset to have a father before me, but listen, I could have probably failed as, as easily as I succeeded and my kids could fail as easily as, as they have succeeded if they just didn't go about it the right way. Yeah. I think that anyone who's been in this business for any amount of time has to realize that you have to do it yourself. No one could, no mm -hmm. one can make you successful and no one can hand mm -hmm. you anything. Even if they do hand you something, you have to take, take the ball and run with it yourself. And it's definitely not an easy business. Uh, it's not, you know, the thing that I've seen for years and years is I've seen a lot of people that were successful in other careers 
come into real estate and think they'll immediately have success in, in this business. And, and it's not rocket science and it's not highly complicated, but it's not easy. Um, and and uh, it's a lot of effort. It's, it's a broad base of knowledge. And, um, and, and a lot of people think it's much easier than it is on the outside. Uh, only until they get on the inside do they realize how much hard work that, that the successful realtors do. Sure. I think I've seen a crazy stat and don't quote me on this, but at something like 89% turnover rate. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's at least, um, you know, it's gotta be that. I mean, somewhere in this conversation, uh, one of the most interesting, you, you, I've looked at some of the questions that you were going to pose today. And, you know, the thing that I find an interesting stat today is that 7% of the agents do 93% of the business, which is to say 93% of the agents do 7% of the business. So whatever that number is, 93% of the people are not where they want to be. Sure. Now, some of them will get there. Uh, some of them maybe were there and, and maybe they're slowing down and some of them have just begun. So it's not fair to judge them against the standards or the, or the ratios of others who've been in the business for 20 years. But if 7% does 93%, then 93% is transitioning. They're either they're going up the ladder and going to become part of the, the 7% or else they're they don't realize it yet, but they're in a transition mode to get in and out of the business in a relatively short window of time, or they're going to sit on the sidelines and just spectate. So you've been, you've been an appraiser. You're currently a builder, a broker and an owner. So I was hoping to kind of get your take on the current market from all of those unique perspectives. You know, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here for a minute and I'm going to ask you to, Describe today's real estate market in three words or less. Hot seller's market. That's, that's good. That, that about sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you didn't think I could do it in three words. <laughs> well, I, I knew you could do it. I, I just didn't know if you could narrow it down to three. <laughs> well, I, mean, you, I, I, didn't, I didn't prepare for that question, but that, that's a fair answer. So um, hot seller's market. Sure. And I would... There are a few other words that I might include in there as well, but uh, unforgiving, that's one mm -hmm. I, I would yeah. say. Crazy. <laughs> it's, it's hectic. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, you've been in, and I don't mean to keep repeating this, but you've been in the business for 30 years, so you've you've pretty much seen everything. You, you saw 2008 and, and how things have recovered since then. 2020, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Have you ever experienced anything like this? Um, I mean, obviously, no. I mean, uh, from the from the uh, listen from the political climate that we don't want to discuss, right? The unrest socially um, and the coronavirus. I mean, there's three things that directly don't have anything to do with real estate, but obviously, everything in the economy has has uh, ultimately affects real estate. But yeah, it's a crazy world. It's a crazy time. Uh, it's uncertain. It's rapidly changing. And yet, as it relates to real estate today, it's surprisingly unaffected. Um, you know, there's everyone has an opinion, so I've got plenty. And, um, you know, you, you live one day at a time and, and then you plan, you know, you look forward and you try to do your best to determine what the future looks like. I mean, we're out there making lots of investments. We're investing capital into subdivisions. We're investing capital in the houses that won't even be completed for six months. 
um, you know, whether it's rental properties, and I don't own that many, but, you know, I've got rental properties and we've got government programs for people being subsidized with rent. And, you know, there was small business loans made to, to corporations to help them to, to, to weather the storm. And, you know, is there another stimulus package coming? I mean, there's so many things to talk about, but, you know, to keep it simple right now, real estate is hot for sellers because the interest rate is low. Um, because the affordability index is still high, because the interest rate is low, uh, prices are increasing. Um, there's lots of concerns that I have about future increasing prices and are they sustainable? But at the moment, I think they are because of the interest rate. And, and, and I think that it's only a matter of how much longer will this current market um, exist as it is today. I, I think it will slow for the fall and winter, seasonal slow. Um, I expect uh, coronavirus will, you know, shut down schools or universities. I suspect we'll have stay in place orders again. Now, I don't want to be a pessimist, but, you know, if, if the flu, you know, and I'm no doctor, right? Um, but, you know, I, I think that most of us just logically think at some point in time, there's some other slowdowns coming that are inherent uh, to the season, to the time of year, um, and to the social interaction with kids in schools and, and people returning back to work. Um, so I, I suspect real estate will have some bumps in the road, but in the long run, supply is still short, interest rates are still low. Most people think interest rates will remain low. Uh, people who are unemployed won't be buying houses, and, and people who have small businesses that have been impacted uh, by coronavirus, people who own restaurants. I mean, I, I, I feel for those folks. I mean, they're, they're taking it on the chin. Um, a lot of people in the entertainment industry. So there's a number of people that are drastically affected. And then there are no, a number of people who've just taken their jobs and taken them home and, um, and, and probably haven't been as drastically impacted. And those people uh, might be looking at the market as an opportunity, opportunity to sell their house for more than it's ever been valued at before, and an opportunity to go and buy a new home or a resale home and, and, and lower their cost with an amazing interest rate. So I, I think real estate in 2021 is, is still good. Um, is it quite as good as 2020? That's hard to say. 2020 is probably going to be the best year that I have ever, have ever had for Discovery Builders, for David Bauer team and likely for Shuler Bauer as well. And so how, how do you have your best year in 34 years during the midst of a coronavirus uh, pandemic? I, I mean, it's just the hard thing to explain. So uh, I'm optimistic, but I don't want to be um, unrealistic. And so I can't imagine that 2021 is better, um, but I really don't look for the sky to drop um, and for the real estate market to become uh, anything, anything close to resembling 2008 or nine or 10. Yeah. So that's the huge question mark, right? Is what, what is that ultimate effect of, of restaurants closing and a lot of people losing their jobs and, and going into forbearance on their mortgages. That's all yet to be seen and how that's going to play out next year. But, um, I just saw today where the fed came out and said that for the foreseeable future, they're saying up until 2023, they're not raising rates unless something really dramatic changes in the economy. So, you know, I, I don't see supply getting a whole lot better anytime soon. And, and those interest rates are going to stay low. So you're kind of in a unique situation to where 
you can almost create your own supply. Um, you're a builder. And so first of all, let's, let's, let me ask you about that. How did you get started in building? Was that something that was always kind of in the plan or was that something that developed once you were, um, in the business for a while? How, how'd that come about? Um, try to keep it as short as I can. Um, I knew very early on. So it, to me, it's just like building blocks. I mean, um, so in my earliest career, I was 19 years old. And so my friends weren't buying houses, right? Um, they were off to college and, um, it was a different time, right? So I was working open houses or working phone duties like all new agents do. And, and I was selling homes, but I was, um, looking for additional revenue. So I early on ventured into, uh, appraisal. And um, I, I work for a lot of great people. I mean, um, names that nobody probably listening to your podcast recognize anymore, but, you know, uh, probably worth mentioning the guys that really taught me so much of what I know today were people that were peers of my father. So besides my father, Dick Cliff or Terry Watson or Charlie Mills or um, uh, can't think of the guy's first name now, Leffert, Carl Leffert, uh, Rick Borges. These were all uh, real estate appraisers. And these were all people that my father connected me to. And frankly, I was um, probably everything from a gopher uh, to chase it again, a whole different world, right? We used to have to go to the courthouse and track down information that now are three clicks away on Elevate. So, you know, I would work for these guys for little to nothing to go shoot their photos and drop off film at the film store and pick the film up and only to find out that the film was overdeveloped or underdeveloped and I had to go to Bethlehem again to shoot photos of a, of a comp. So I, I did a lot of grunt work. Um, I went to all the places they didn't want to go, Marengo, Milltown, and, it, and that, this is part of the, you know, walk both ways to school, uphill in the snow kind of story. But, um, you know, this is the part people don't really know, right? They see me today and they see, you know, you have a team and things are probably pretty comfortable for you. But, you know, I was a, a grunt. Uh, for these other people and, um, and got paid very little and, uh, and still learned an awful lot. And um, so I'm going back to the original question now. I'm kind of losing track of that. But, <laughs> um, so tell me where we were again so I don't embarrass myself. No, you're fine. I, I was asking how you got, a, how you got your start oh, in, oh, in new construction yeah. and building. Yeah. And, and okay. I also wanted to ask you about the appraisal business as well. That's so uh, no, no harm, no foul. The billing part of it, I just knew that, you know, at some point in time, right, um, you learn appraisal, and, and appraisal is super val a valuable skill. And, again, I, I can go into greater detail. I had partners there, and I appraised for about 10 years, and I made a living, right? I paid bills with that. But at some point in time, you know, I, I was assembling a lot of skills. Um, and if you're really, you know, if, you, if you're an investment broker, I think you ought to probably invest your money uh, as you ask others to invest it. And so – Early on, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I just knew that I wanted to buy rental property or I wanted to be involved. And so with older partners like my father and, and some of the Janet Blakes and Diane Berries of the world, they introduced me to different people. David Ruckman, Steve brought us again names from the past. And I became, you know, the, the I was the guy who did the work and didn't have the money, right? So I was the guy who had the small percentage uh, but I was the guy who at Doe Creek sold all the lots um, or at Brookstone phase one, you know, worked all the open houses. And so at some point in time, we did some land development and, uh, and I was the small share. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the building company, the point is, is that 
we were always selling lots to builders, always trying to convince builders to build houses, and then always, you know, trying to get the builders to what choose the right plan and, and choose the right cosmetics. Now, the builders today are much, much better at this than the builders uh, of yesteryear, but there was a time when, you know, you, you'd sell the lot to the builder and they wouldn't build a, a marketable plan or they wouldn't they wouldn't finish it out in a marketable fashion. And so before you know it, you know, what's my job is talking to buyers every day, finding out what they like and don't like about these houses. So at some point in time, I go to the partners who have capital and I say, we should start a building company because, you know, it wasn't this bad, but I'm tired of telling these guys or gals what to build and, and they do their own thing. And so at that point in time, I got my dad and others to, to put some capital up at a young age. And then I went out and recruited Don DeVille, who's still my partner today, because Donnie knew how to put houses together and I knew what sold. And, and that's, you know, it's more complicated than that, but that's still the rule of thumb today is I don't swing a hammer and, and I don't put a foundation in the ground, although I'm capable of, of knowing how it's done. Um, I choose the plans. I choose the locations. I'm still connected to the buyers and the realtors and I know what sells and where value lies. And then Donnie and the construction team still know how to build a good home, how to, how to unearth it, how to build it. And that's, that's the foundation of Discovery Builders today. But in the beginning, it was just an idea of mine that was hatched. And I took it to others and said, you want to put your money behind this idea and convince them to do so for the minority share. And over time, right, time goes by. And, and in my case, you buy out your partners when they want to retire. You know, but it's it it's all it's how I tell my kids to do it today, right? If you don't have the capital to do what you want to do, then go find someone who has the capital, pitch the idea, become a partner, and um, and anybody. There's a lot of people out there on the sidelines with capital who love to get involved in the game, and there's lots of people on the inside of the game that have the skill set. Maybe they don't have the capital, or maybe they're just afraid of of doing something for the first time. Find a partner and get out there and do it. Sure. And speaking of what sells, um, mm -hmm. that's kind of a good lead in to my next question, which mm -hmm. is what is today's consumer looking for in a new home? You know, is it, we've seen a lot of changes just here in the past six months. Mm -hmm. Is it office space? Is it more land, more outdoor living space? And how has that changed over the past 20 years or the past six months? Sure. Um, I think, I don't want to complicate the question, but I think it first falls into demographics, right? So um, when you talk about what does the consumer want, you know, a 70-year-old consumer wants something different than a millennial consumer. And uh, so I think the most important part of that is breaking down who your buyer is and breaking down your demographics. And, um, you know, you can make some generalizations, but certainly the 70-plus group, right, they're looking for no or low maintenance. They're looking for one step into the house, they're looking for, you know, handicap access, you know, things like that, that, that matter to them. Um, you know, I'd say by and large, you know, generally speaking, people like open floor plans more than they like closed floor plans. Uh, because of the increasing cost, the home size continues to get smaller, right? So you've got to open it up. Um, flex space. I, I think that a lot of times the, maybe the decrease in the average family, um, size, you know, causes you to take a look at bedroom three and say, can we make it flexible? Can it be a flex dining room? Can it be a flex craft room? Can it be a flex home office? Um, certainly what we're doing here today, I'm working from my office, you're working from yours and your home. 
Um, I, I think that in the future, people will start to pay attention to dedicated office. I actually think that was a trend that was going away. And it was a trend that was going away because I could take my laptop and sit at my open kitchen and sit at my bar and, and get my email, pay my bills, do what I wanted to do um, from my great room or my kitchen. But I don't want to take a Zoom call today. I'm at home. My daughter's at home with a friend and they're doing school in the basement. My wife is probably on her computer doing doing what she does. And so, you know, people want to close the door today and, and be able to talk out loud like we're doing. And so I, I do think that flex rooms and home offices are going to start to come back. Um, I think that outdoor space has been popular, but I think that outdoor space is going to continue to get more popular just because, again, what if we're all locked down, right? I mean, everybody wants to expand their deck or have the latest grill uh, or have a fire pit because, you know, if you're working from home and you're spending time at home, your home needs to be your vacation spot, your work spot, and, and your everyday spot to kind of, you know, manage the, the, the everyday details. So um, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I see that personally with, with my clients now, they, that, that home office space is really, really mm -hmm. super important to them now because a lot of people, they're not going back to the office. Mm -hmm. Some of these businesses are realizing, hey, we don't need to <laughs> to right. spend all this capital on these large office buildings when people can work from home. So that's that's become a very important thing. And, you know, with with the civil unrest that we've been experiencing, a lot of people are looking to get out of the cities, which you and I both know for the past 20 to 30 years, they've been pushing people back into the inner city. And now it's it's that's starting to reverse now, too. So. It's uh, it's interesting to kind of see how things are changing rapidly. I would say, um, you know, it's funny. Like high speed internet is more important than say a natural gas line. And now I'm going to speak from a developer's concern. But you know, once upon a time it was like, can you get natural gas? Can you, can you get? Well, it's much more important to have high speed internet than natural gas. And so high speed internet is everything. And then I couldn't agree with you more that. Um, you know, a little bit of an exodus from the city to the suburban market and, and a lot of emphasis on outdoor space. And, and probably as far as subdivisions go, uh, even, even though it's a, it's a weird year with COVID, I'd still say um, community assets like swimming pools or, or walking paths or just, just an environment where people feel like they can get outside because they feel like they're trapped in their homes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And something else that I feel like is a, is a huge need that, that is not being fulfilled, uh, in the way it should be is, as you mentioned before, the older generation, the baby boomers, you know, they call it the silver tsunami and it's, it's already started. It's coming over the next 15 years. They're looking to get out of those big homes. They don't want the McMansions anymore. They want something with no stairs that there's a minimal upkeep and they also need something affordable. And that therein lies a whole new set of problems and something that I'm sure you, you deal with on a daily basis is the cost of, of materials and labor that is just absolutely skyrocketing. And how do you continue to build homes that people can afford to buy? Sure. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I think the, the, um, the answer to the question that you're kind of asking is, you know, what are we going to do about affordable housing? And, and I'd say it's a challenge. And, and then I think, how does, how does the void get filled? So 
I mean, I'm not sure where, you know, as soon as I say this, somebody will point to somebody who can break this barrier, but there's not much new housing, hardly any below 200,000. And um, there's not a great deal. There's not a great deal of um, new housing under 250. Okay. So, so how does somebody, and, and what's affordable, you know, the, the average uh, sales price is going up, the median sales price is going up and, you know, where's, where's the affordable line. So the only way to get there is to really reduce the footprint, which how far can you reduce the footprint? Right. And, um, uh, but I think the, I think what's really going to happen and you're seeing it happen right now. And I think it will just continue to happen. I think the renovators, the flippers, um, the smaller investors, not that somebody big can't get in and, and do this, but I think you're going to see people buy older houses and rehab them. And, um, and if they can get them at the right price, I think that under 250, I think that's a decent solution. That's not a brand spanking new construction solution. Um, and, and again, there will be some housing built under 250, but I just don't see a lot of it. Okay. Um, especially probably not much under 200. And so what are people, you know, what are they getting when they get a new house? And obviously they're getting a warranty, but they're, they're really getting assurances, right? They're getting assurances that I'm not going to have to replace my windows or replace my roof or replace my furnace and air. And, you know, my kitchen's up to date. And, and, and so that's, what's great about new construction is you move in and you shouldn't have to spend much money in the first 10 years, you know, before things start to kind of age out a little bit. So I think what, what's going to happen for the buyers in the marketplace is that flippers are going to go in and pick up. Now, these properties, a lot of them do lie in the urban areas, right? The really older homes. But you're seeing a lot of these homes right now in, say, residential New Albany or, or urban, urban residential New Albany or urban residential Jeff. People buy these houses and they put new roofs on them, new furnaces, new central air, they wire them up new and put new baths and kitchens. And, and the prices vary. But you can probably get some flipped houses that are flipped decently well, starting maybe in the 160, 70 range, going through 250. And, um, and so I do think that's going to fill some of the void. Um, you know, high-density concepts, um, you know, but you still need a smaller footprint. It doesn't really matter if you build 16 units together. It doesn't automatically make it that much less expensive to build just because you build, a, say, a townhome versus a single family if you're still putting nice features in it and it still has good square footage so um, affordability i think is the challenge of the future i see prices continuing to go up um you know prices won't stop going up until demand goes down and um, and we can get into a lot of politics whether it's tariffs or whether it's covid whether it's wildfires whether it's hurricanes whether it's just sheer number of home sales it's not going down um, anytime soon and in fact i think it's just going to continue to go up 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 and it's going to be absorbed and so uh, it's funny we now talk about affordable housing and uh, when i think about affordable housing i think can i do anything under three hundred thousand? and and to me it's I, I i hate saying that but I think of affordable housing as can i build a, a ranch on slab for under 300 and can i build a house with a finished basement for under 350 and to me that's certainly not affordable to a large percentage of the audience but it, it's hard to build a house with the integrity and the materials that that we like to use at discovery um and, and really beat those prices by much sure and and 
speaking to affordability again, I, I just read an article by um, NARS chief economist, and mm-hmm. it stated that between 2010 and 2020, the median home price had gone up 61%. Mm-hmm. But the affordability mm-hmm. stayed the same because mm-hmm. with inflation and, and rising wages and the lower interest rates, the affordability has kind of stayed the same. And I, I don't know, you know, we're lucky here in our little part of the world because I think the median home price in the United States right now is up around $295,000. I think we're closer to what the 200,000 mark here in our, in our little corner of the world. And it is, it is increasing, but we still have quite a ways to go to catch up to, to some of the other, the other markets. Um, you know, I sold a house this summer that was the exact same floor plan, same builder, new construction that I sold two years ago, albeit in a different neighborhood. I sold it two years ago for 172. This summer, I sold the same house, same floor plan, same square footage, 235. Mm-hmm. That tells everybody what what is happening with the price for not only new construction but but housing in general. And, and kind of speaking on that. Have you had any issues? I've heard of people having issues with low appraisals on new construction. Have you come across that that problem? Uh, sure. And, and one point going kind of backwards, I mean, just to give your viewers, your, your folks listening, lumber, um, lumber since I think April 12th or whatnot, it's more than, it's gone up more than 100%. And so to put it in perspective, we have numerous jobs where just the lumber package alone uh, has changed say 14 to $20,000. So that's real, right? I mean, if you can't, they pass it off to us, we have to pass it off to the consumer. Sure. Um, now, you know, say if you're at 300,000 or, um, you know, let's try to find an easy number, um, you know, 350. If we raise the price $15,000 on 350, uh, we're somewhere around 5%, you know, our three, 5% of uh, 300 is 15,000. But I'd say that we're raising our prices by on average six to eight percent annually, and probably right now really struggling to keep our margins intact uh, because the prices go up faster. And and again, kind of going to the builder dilemma, uh, you know, a lot of builders sell a house today, right? It doesn't finish out for six months. This is going to lead to your appraisal question. Um, but hey, you know, lumber went up since April, you know, fifteen twenty thousand, but the house won't be done until next April. Um, we've got to pass along a lot of times $20,000 per house, probably minimum at our price point, 2025. Um, and sure, that can lead to appraisal uh, problems. Um, short answer, have we really experienced a lot of appraisal problems? We haven't. Um, now, you know, why is that? Probably too long of an answer. Um, but because of my building experience, the sales experience and my appraisal experience, you know, I do think that we do a lot of things with David Bauer team or discovery that kind of head off problems, but you know, the appraisal is a, is a very misunderstood dilemma. And, and I don't want to make this too windy or, or too deep, but it's kind of like there's two aspects of an appraisal problem. There's the value itself and there's supporting value and they're completely two different things. And, and so today, the problem in the marketplace the appraisers are having is they're having a problem supporting the value. 
And and I'm going to dig into two or three of your questions if you'll allow me. I think I'll go right ahead. Yeah. So because the dilemma today is that, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules and he who has the gold is the mortgage lender. They have the money. You and I want to buy a house. We want a loan. We have to go through the mortgage lender. Who does the appraiser work for? And the answer is mortgage lender. Okay. What is the appraiser's primary purpose? It's to appraise the property for fair market value. However, the the rules of how the appraisal is conducted are written by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, or USDA. And if you were to ask the appraisers off camera or off record, you know, they feel handcuffed that they're constantly being scrutinized by the AMC, the appraisal management company, or they're being scrutinized by the mortgage lender. And so when an appraisal problem comes up, if I have the opportunity, which is rare, to even ask the appraiser, hey, what's the problem? Is, is it a matter of value? Do you just not believe in the value? Do you not see the value? Or are you having a problem supporting the value? Probably 19 out of 20 times, they're gonna say, I, I, I'm having a problem supporting the value. And again, not to pick on the appraisers, because I love that community. I was, I was raised in that community and I respect the appraisers immensely, but some of them have almost become they've almost lost their way in the fact that they don't even feel like they're being asked to appraise properties anymore. They're being asked to give reports to the lender in the fashion that the lender has dictated. And it isn't even the lender, it's the servicers like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or the insurers like VA or the guarantors like VA FHA. And so they're being handcuffed and in a, in a market that's rapidly appreciating it's hard for them to adjust for the passage of time. You just said that his sold a house two years ago that grew um, some $40,000, $50,000. Now, as a percentage, that probably grew 20-some-odd percent, right? And so the appraisers would have a tough time today appraising a home and, and making a what they call a time adjustment or a passage of time adjustment. And, and it's not that they don't believe it's happening. They do. But their problem is they're going to be scrutinized by the underwriter. As soon as the underwriter or the AMC receives the appraisal, they're then going to create more work for themselves by having to try to explain it to the other party. And so going back to my original, you know, original statement, there's two issues today. What's it worth and and how can I support it? What it's worth, probably 95 out of 100 times at least, a willing and informed buyer and a willing and informed seller, each party working independent of the other, each party reasonably informed, each party protecting their best interest, each party with a realtor getting advice, they they probably come to the agreement of market value just by the definition of the word market value. They have negotiated each of them respective of the other of their best interest, neither party being under duress, therefore they have reached a market value uh, agreement. Now the problem is send that into the, you know, hire the appraiser, send the appraiser out. And the first thing the appraiser has to do is, you know, find comparables in the last 180 days within a one mile radius with net and gross adjustments that don't deviate too much for the, for the AMC or for the underwriter and then how dare that appraiser make a time adjustment or how dare that appraiser make an adjustment for quality or condition that seems out of the norm or out of line because maybe your your seller just spent $40,000 renovating bathrooms and kitchens 
if that appraiser makes that adjustment, the AMC or the underwriter is going to scrutinize that appraiser, and then that appraiser may or may not get hired for future jobs again, or at a minimum, their job just became twice as hard because now they've got to add a top four, five, and six and write a narrative as to why they did what they did. So I know it's kind of a windy answer, but it's an answer that nobody's really talking about. I don't have any problem with the value system that we have today, and I really don't have I have very little problems with appraisers today because I know the challenge they're up against before they ever step foot on my property. And so as it relates to new homes, I have plenty of strategies that help me and as the owner of Discovery Builders, for instance, on custom custom homes, we take non-refundable deposits because if Glenn Hawkersmith wants me to build a triangular shaped house, this is an exaggeration, but if he wants me to build a triangular shaped house and put 14 karat gold faucets, I can do that for Glenn Hawkersmith, but that doesn't mean the appraiser is going to see value in that, nor should the appraiser appraise it. So I take a non-refundable deposit and, and I tell you, Glenn, that the burden of getting the loan and completing the transaction is on you and you're going to park $40,000 with me and therefore I'm going to inform you, but if you choose to make bad decisions, that's on you. And, and then with a lot of our clients where we're in certain subdivisions where appraisals are everything, FHA, VA buyers and 5% and, and down buyers, we try to help buyers protect themselves from themselves. And so they may see our house under construction. They may want us to make $15,000 worth of upgrades that are specific to them. And we either A, tell them no, uh, because we fear that it won't appraise, or B, we tell them to write us a $15,000 check and at that point in time, they've paid us for those upgrades and it does not raise the sales price and it does not uh, change the, the loan equation. Uh, that's enough for most buyers to pass on those types of upgrades. But if they choose to do them, then we have them pay for them in advance and we advise them that this is the kind of set of circumstances that may lead to a short appraisal. So knock on wood, we have very, very, very few problems. But it's because we anticipate in advance and we have strategies and we educate the client along the way. And then if we ever do have, quote unquote, a short appraisal, then we look at it. Um, we analyze the comparables. We know what the appraisers are up against. And then we analyze our client's position, you know, whether that's a buyer side of the equation or whether it's a seller. And, and you might be shocked or surprised how we respond differently. Sometimes if we're representing a, a buyer, for say a hundred percent loan and, and the buyer can't pay more than the appraised value, then we do what every other agent does. And we say, Hey seller, will you sell the property for appraised value? And the seller can say yes or no. And if they say no, we move on. If they say yes, then we just got a better deal. Right. And, but on the seller side, we ask ourselves this question, um, should we take less? Did we in fact oversell it? Or if this buyer goes away, are we going to be able to substitute another buyer in that buyer's place in a matter of days? That's normally the case. And so in those instances, the short appraisal is really a product of the buyer's loan, the buyer's lender, the loan process, the loan requirements. It's not a process of the house being sold for too much. That's the misconception. Too many agents say, oh, it didn't appraise. It wasn't worth it. That's not the case. It didn't appraise because of the mortgage underwriting guidelines and, and the, hand, the appraiser was handcuffed because I've seen experiences where we've had buyer's agents that had to walk away 
only to see the property put right back on the market and sell for the exact same price our buyer was forced to walk away and and to have the next appraiser come in and appraise it and that's very discouraging to buyers but it really is about knowing all sides and all facets of the equation and doing the best you can on whichever side you represent sure and i've been there myself and i know as agents one of our favorite thing to do is to blame appraisers and and <laughs> talk about what a bad job they do sometimes but honestly I, I i feel like overall they do a great job and it's not a job i would want to do it seems like you're always going to have someone upset with you no matter what well, i dad, did i have some i have to enter some some of these old timers that i that my dad introduced me to people that he went to bob brooks senior who's bob brooks jr's father from years ago and in my dad and Dick Clip and some of these old timers that, you know, they used to always say, uh, they used to call me a little buzzy, but they'd say little buzzy, you know, when you're an appraiser, um, you, you, you never please anybody. You're either too high, too low, or if you come in at value, then everybody says you just looked at the contract. And, <laughs> right. and that is, that is the life of an appraiser is they, they really aren't, they, they are in a tough position um, and I do, I really do feel for them, but that, you know, just what agents need to really remember is the appraisal process is not completely dictated uh, by the mortgage lender, but the mortgage lender has the money, the mortgage lender wrote the rules and the appraisers have to play the game by the rules. And, and those rules are written to protect the lender. They're not really written so that appraisers have the freedom to tell you what they really think it's worth. And, and one last thing on appraisals, because I think if this is, if agents listen to your podcast, I'm not sure if you have a general audience or an agent audience, but, you know, when it comes to just, um, sorry, knowledge about the whole situation with appraisers, if it comes to challenging an appraisal, one of the things that agents need to understand is there's really only two ways that an appraiser is going to ever give credence to any kind of challenge. And, and this is where I think agents approach this probably incorrectly more times than they approach it correctly, is if you ever get a copy of the appraisal, you can review it for material error. You know, did the appraiser say your house was built in 1965 when it was built in 1995? And, and the appraisers usually don't make material errors like that, but you can check it over for an error. And, and really what you hear the appraisers and the underwriter and the rest of the world say is they say comps, 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 comps. And the appraisers, have already selected what they feel are the best comps. So about the only thing you can do is maybe uncover a for sale by an owner or maybe uncover something that just closed that the appraiser didn't pick up on. But in most cases, appraisals are hard to challenge because if they've done a good job with their facts and they've done a good job with their comp selection, they're not just going to change it because you and I uh, emotionally think it's worth more. Right. They're, they're not going to allow us to challenge their adjustments uh, because that's what they're skilled at. Sure. And I, I had two recent situations. One was a, a VA situation where the appraiser issued a Tidewater, which if people don't know what that means, it means they give you 24 hours to yeah. to submit more comps to support what you feel like the value is. And on that one, it came back and he decided not to change it, which I couldn't argue with. You know, yeah. now the other situation appraiser came in $25,000 under purchase price. We felt like there was a comp that should have been used that was way more comparable and sold more recently rather than the, the comp that sold last year that was used. And there was also 
a recent appraisal that the seller had had done on a refi that was way closer to supporting the value. We were successful in that. We got a new appraisal and lo and behold, it appraised for over purchase price. So three different appraisals within a five month period, each appraisal was $15,000 different than the other. So I think something so, so, you know, Hey, listen, I think you do a wonderful job. I've told you that separate from your podcast. So I think you're an up and comer or you're, you're already here uh, and you're doing a great job, but going back to that 793, um, you know, I, again, I have a lot of thoughts in my head about how people should get into the real estate industry and be successful. But a lot of the paths uh, are like the path that you're following. I mean, buyer agency is the normal place to start open houses, new construction, there's, there's different ways to get there. But, but really, if you do your job and along the way, you pay attention to the details and I'm not taking shots at appraisers. I'm not taking shots at appraisers. They're trained to do something that you're not trained to do, which is make adjustments. But let me, let me ask you this. I mean, do you go out and show hundreds and hundreds of houses and do you work with hundreds and hundreds of buyers? And it goes back to my, how did I get into the building business? I got in the building business because every Sunday I sat at open house and asked people what they thought and, and attempted to sell them a house. And I listened to them. And when they told me I don't like this or I don't like that, or when they told me they liked this or they liked that, then I decided to, you know, maybe I can do this. and Maybe I can design houses or pick lots and, and give people what they're telling me they want. And, and the moral to the story is this. Good agents, good agents know value better than good appraisers. Now, that's not taking a shot at the appraisers. The appraisers are going out there and seeing a property at one moment in time, then going to the MLS and looking at other properties based upon what we agents tell them. Did we, did we stretch the square footage or did we give them accurate square footage? Did we give them good photos to work with or did we give them bad photos to work with? You, on the other hand, if you sell a number of houses and you have these buyer experiences, you know what the alternate choice is. You know, and this is what I tell my buyer's agents all the time. If they come to me with a, a with an appraisal, I say, okay, number one, can you go find your client something better in the marketplace? Yes or no. If you can, then you should. If you can't, then maybe you need to let the buyer know what the alternate choice is because if the buyer has looked, at six or eight or 10 properties, and then you look again, and there's no better alternate choice, then why is it that the appraiser thinks it's not worth it? Because as soon as your buyer steps away, another buyer is going to swoop in and pay the same price. Seen that happen countless times. So I, I guess the moral to the story is about what you said about having three different appraisals is good agents know value. They know value. Now they may not be able to prove value, and they may not be able to write an appraisal that would meet a and underwriter standards, but you should know property value as well as any experienced appraiser because you live it. And, and that's how come I don't really knock on woods. It, it's not that we're always successful because we're not. Some appraisers are going to dig their heels in and not change their mind. And that's, it is what it is, but I'm a hundred percent confident in my knowledge after I go through a little interview session with my buyer's agents, because if they've done their jobs and they've showed the property, it really comes down to would your buyer be better off getting out of this agreement and going and buying another property? Yes or no. Or would they be better off staying in this agreement and paying this price? Yes or no. The answer to market value is right there in front of you because if the buyer can find a better property, they should. 
And the same argument goes for the seller. Should the seller come down on price? Well, if they fear that if this buyer goes away, they can't get another buyer, they should. But if the seller's confident, they can put it back on the market and in three days have five more offers, then let the next buyer worry about the financing. Let the next buyer worry about the appraisal because you know the next appraiser may see it completely different. And, and so that's why I say there's really two key components to this argument. What's the property worth? Agents really know a lot about what properties are worth. How can I prove it to an underwriter or meet the underwriter's guidelines? Appraisers are handcuffed right now, and that's where most of the issues with short appraisals are taking place. Sure, and I think some of the problem as well is because of the way the market is the way it is. Mm -hmm. Some people are, are throwing their house on the market for mm -hmm. Fifteen twenty thousand dollars more than than you know what the the comps support, and be, because there's nothing else out there, people are willing to pay it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we come in as as agents and mm -hmm. make sure we do a better job of making sure we're advising our clients to to do the smart thing here. So I think we we have a a role to play in that as well. So mm -hmm. kind of wrapping wrapping this up, and I just want to say this. To any appraisers who may be listening, I love you. I, th I think you do a wonderful, wonderful job. Now, can you give some advice um, to a new agent, a listing agent, on what you can do to make sure you don't run into these problems when you list a home? Make sure you're not going to run into to a low appraisal. I mean, you can't control it 100%, but there are some things you can do to make sure that the appraiser has all the necessary information and and that you can support your value the best you can. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the listing side of the equation, I think is a, is a much, it, it's more complicated than probably the industry gives it credit for being. And, and again, it's why I think all agents should cut their teeth on the buy side of the transaction. And because they learn a lot about the property and, and, and what buyers want on the buy side on the listing side, um, it is much more technical. I mean, sure you look at comps, but, once a house is no longer brand new, then there are no two houses that are maintained the same, right? There's no two houses that are decorated the same. And, and so, sure, uh, I mean, a thorough seller questionnaire, a thorough dive into public records, a thorough dive into MLS history, a thorough examination of the property, get your facts right, the square footage, the bedrooms, the bathrooms, you know, sure, do a comp a comp dive, you know, know what's in the immediate neighborhood. I always do three types of searches. I always do an immediate neighborhood. I always do what I call a like kind. You know, if I got a two story, four bed, three bath, and I'm going to go for two stories, four beds, three baths and, and basement. But if I'm in, you know, XYZ neighborhood, I'm also going to know everything that's happened in XYZ neighborhood. And then the last thing, one of the last things I do, uh, which I think, again, appraisers, don't have this luxury, right? They, they go into a house at a moment in time, they take a snapshot, they go back to the office and they start looking backwards at historical data. I mean, that's just the way the rules are. It's not their fault. What agents do, I mean, I, I live that life and I did that life and I know exactly how to do that. But the reason I chose the sales life is because we look forward, they look backwards. And it's, it's the rules, right? It's, it's not their fault. It's just they're told to do that. They look backwards. I look at it. So when I do the immediate neighborhood or I do the like kind, 
and let's just say I hypothetically think a house is worth 240, 250, that's my range of value. Then the next thing I'm gonna do is start looking forward. And I'm gonna start looking at my competition. And, and this is what you alluded to, but sometimes, and, and this, this goes from an average agent to what I would consider a great agent. And, and I consider our team to be a great team. And I think we do a great job for sellers because we do this as well as anybody. And what I'm gonna talk about is forecasting. And so, you know, when you look backwards, and we all know it's a it's an undersupplied market. We all we all know there's demand, but there have been numerous times when I looked at the data and I did an absorption analysis, and and I got to draw some hypotheticals. But maybe in a six month window, there were 60 sales. There were we were averaging 10 10 sales a month at this price point or at this geography, and and maybe there was even pending there was 20 houses, you know, and pendings usually represent about a 45 to 60 day lag in the market, 30 to 60 days. So there's all this data that says 10 units a month, 10 units a month, 10 units a month. And I go to the MLS and I see there's three units or five units listed. Then I dig in and I look at those three or five units and, and the pictures are horrible. The condition is horrible. They're the dogs, right? They're the complete dogs that everybody's picked over. So you know the day you list it, you know that everybody at that price point is going to want, and then you draw up your strategy. Now, again, I don't think overpricing is the right strategy. If a house was worth 250, I wouldn't ask 290. If a house was worth 250, I'd ask 250, and I'd develop a strategy to make sure 15 people saw it, so that I had five or six offers, so that they bid it up over top of the list price. And then, sure, maybe I'd worry about the appraisal later, but guess what? When I had six or eight offers to look at, I'd also be looking at who, who has to have an appraisal to complete the purchase and who doesn't, who's 100% financing and who's not. And so to kind of get back to the original question is, sure, you do the market analysis, but everybody's so interested in looking backwards. And the real answer and, and the challenge that appraisers have today is, they can't, they're not allowed to look forward. And all the answers lie looking forward. Is the interest, is the, is the marketplace good or better than it was three months ago? It's, it's equal or better. Are interest rates stable? You know, is, is, you know, what's the absorption rate? What's the supply and demand? And, and, you know, how much are things historically appreciating? And, and then at that point in time, the one thing I see in the marketplace, I see a number of agents who undersell houses. They undersell houses because they look at comps three to six months ago and they think that's the answer, but they don't look forward and they don't do an absorption analysis and they don't realize that if there's 20 buyers for every one good listing, they are going to bid it up and maybe there will be an appraisal problem, but guess what? We sell houses over list all day long and then we choose the cash buyer or then we choose the 20% or 30% down buyer that helps us to, to, prove appreciating property values as opposed to people who undersell properties who are simply holding property owners back from getting the appreciation they they actually deserve sure that's a good point and sometimes it's not even purchase price sometimes it's financing terms or some other terms that that win that win a a, a bidding war um, letter or the letter to the seller that you're no longer supposed to write <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> So whatever it takes, I mean, and, and I think that's something, you know, you should do that, but I mean, strategies, right? I mean, there's so many good strategies. So experience leads to many, you know, when you're in my charity, Dennis, for a number of years, 
you've had all the experiences, good and bad. And so, you know, a, there's a huge difference today in how transactions are being transacted by different agents. And the agents that are on top of their games and the agents who are invested in their careers, they, they are doing much better job than the agents who are treating this as a hobby or, or a second income or, or they're just one foot in, one foot out because it's so fast paced today that you've got to be on top of your game. And if you don't do these types of strategies or you don't stay up on these strategies, then you're really just providing the seller or the buyer with a major disservice. And, and that's, you know, I know we're out of time, but my, my biggest pet peeve in the industry today is that I believe real estate is a profession. I believe that the people who conduct it at the highest level are, are professionals equivalent to accountants and, 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 and other people in other careers. But our, our point of entry is, is very easy to get in and call yourself a real estate professional. But, and many people think it's much easier to do than what it is. But what's most important here is servicing the client. And, and that's the thing that I, I really feel I don't know, passionate about is that you need to stay on top of your game. You need to, to know these strategies and know what's going on in the marketplace or how can you answer the question from the buyer who just had a short appraisal and wants it explained to them or how can you explain to your seller, did you underprice the house or did you not when you ended up with, with, with 10 offers uh, in 72 hours? And, and when we do it, it's a strategy. When we do it, we've talked about the potential outcomes. We've really analyzed it, but Today, I, I just I, I fear for the consumer in such a fast-paced environment. Those that are ill-prepared and those that are ill-trained are out there giving their clients who are who are making the single largest investment they're ever going to make in their lives for most of them. Right? They're out there giving them uncertain advice or or even I don't know untested advice. So I, I applaud you for what you're doing. I know you're a great agent, um, and uh, appreciate you giving me the time to have this forum, but um, I just wish for all the agents that they all continue to invest in their education uh, and stay on top of these trends so that all of us can can deem ourselves as a profession as opposed to a trade organization. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And and I know we are running out of time. There were a couple other things I wanted to talk to you about, such as your team and, and <laughs> how you built such a successful team. And maybe we can maybe we can revisit that at another time. Um, but kind of, kind of just playing off of what you just said, and we'll kind of move through this real quickly. If there was something that you could change about real estate just by waving a magic wand today, is there one thing right off the top of your mind that, that you would change? Yeah. I mean, the agents, um, you know, and by that, I just mean standards, uh, education. I, I'm not... I think the point of entry is much too low. The bar is set much too low. The standards are set much too low. Um, we help people, you know, with $500,000 homes, $700,000 homes. It doesn't matter if it's an $89,000 home to the person who's buying it. It's a major investment. And um, I certainly wouldn't buy stocks and bonds from somebody who got their license in, in six or eight weeks or two weeks on the internet. And again, I'm not here to take shots uh, at, at realtors. I love realtors, but the standards are much too low. The bar is set much too low and, and way too many people get into the business and then they start marketing themselves, which is very productive to them getting leads. But when they get leads, they're ill prepared to give advice. And so it scares me um, a lot 
uh, for the industry that so many people can get a license in such a short window of time, go to Facebook and attract their friends to do business with them. And honest to goodness, they don't have any clue what they're doing. And, and that's across all companies, across all brands. Uh, it's an industry problem. It's not, you know, it's not isolated to one company or one area or one region. Sure. And I think it's going to become more and more important to be able to distinguish yourself from, mm -hmm. from those agents, especially now you've got iBuyers coming in and now you've got, I read something earlier today, Zillow is going to be part of our MLS next year. So there's all kinds of different challenges um, and a lot of changes coming to real estate here in the future. So if you're not thinking about how you're going to adjust to those changes and, and address those future changes in your business, then you might not be in the business much longer. <laughs> so I think that's a big challenge to all of us right now. Uh, there will always be, you know, the one thing is, is, is this, there's, there's, I always look at the business and try to keep it simple. There's getting the business and there's doing the business. And, um, and, and listen, getting the business is arguably more important because if you don't get it, you can't do it. Um, but I would say this to all realtors that are listening, if you're good at doing the business, you'll never be replaced. Uh, and that is because people are always, you know, so as people aggregate and that's what Zillow does and that's what major corporations do, they aggregate leads or they, they spend more money on advertising or they, they get to people before we get to them and then they refer them to us, right? I mean, that's what these aggregators do. Or even if they handle it themselves through iBuying, there will always be a place for those people who have skills in real estate and who understand valuation or negotiation or alternate choice or basic principles if if you're just a warm and fuzzy and and just and relationships matter they matter a lot but if you have substance there will be a place for you in real estate if you lack substance then you have a lot to be fearful about these changes that will be coming in the future i would agree with that 100 percent. and I'm, i've got one more question for you then i'm going to let you go you you're kind of a workaholic um what do you do when you're not doing real estate and what would you be doing professionally if you weren't in the real estate business? Um, what do I do? I mean, I have fun. So uh, I play golf. I live at Champions Point. Um, so I play golf. Um, I boat. Um, I like to bike and hike. Um, I'm getting too old, but I still occasionally run, right? So I, I like to just be active. Uh, when I come home from stressful days, I go run and just try to get it, you know, get all that out of my system, right? Um, so those are the kind of things that I do for fun. And uh, what would I be doing? I mean, I've been doing this since I was 19 years old, so I, I really never had another career path. Um, I guess in my mind, um, you know, I think I'm analytical. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people have told me they thought I would make a good attorney. Um, I'm probably a little argumentative sometimes, so I like to kind of push back on the system. So, um, you know, maybe an attorney or, um, and I still think I might go out and take flying lessons. Uh, so maybe a pilot. How about that? There you go. And I'll have to admit, I, I, I kind of, I tried to con some of your daughters into giving me some, maybe a little funny story or some info on you. And they were... <laughs> They shot away from it. The best I could do was uh, Morgan told me that every every vacation when she was a kid usually ended up turning into looking at real estate. So <laughs> I was not surprised by that. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, you asked one of your questions is what will I do in retirement? My wife is really worried uh, because uh, if I retired, I would just go crazy. 
Um, so I will, I will, I'm sure I will never retire. I just hope to slow down and do more of the things that are on the hobby list than, than to always be thinking about business. And that's a good thing about this business. You can do it up into your later years. Um, oh, you're just calling as, me old. <laughs> <laughs> just as little or as much as you want, right? So, all right, I'm going to wrap this up. I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to uh, to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope you have a great day. Sounds great. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, David. All right. Thanks again to David Bauer, and a special thanks to you for choosing to spend some of your time with me today. Please be sure to support the podcast by sharing it with your friends, hitting that subscribe button on your favorite platform, and maybe even writing a short review. Also, Head over to Facebook and like the show page, putting the real in real estate, where you can also watch, as well as my YouTube channel, Glenn Hawker Smith Realtor. Most importantly, give me a call if you or someone you know is thinking of buying or selling a home. I would love to serve you. Once again, thanks for listening, and hope you have a great day.